Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode 56. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're doing well. Today on the show, we are talking to Sharon Rojo about his Sterile Processing Fellowship research paper. Now, this is featured in the January-February 2022 issue of the Process Publication. Great information. You're not going to want to miss what he has to say today. But before we get into that, we have the segment, What's On My Mind? All right, today on What's On My Mind, we are taking a look at the top 10 health technology hazards for 2022. The top 10 list is produced by ECRI, and you can find this information in its entirety at the ECRI, that's E-C-R-I, dot org website. Now, for more information about becoming a member of one of the ECRI programs and accessing this full report, you can contact client services at E-C-R-I dot org or call 610-825-6000, extension 5891. All right, here we go. The list for 2022. Number one on the list, cyber security attacks can disrupt healthcare delivery, impacting patient safety. Number two, supply chain shortfalls pose risk to patient care. Number three, damaged infusion pumps can cause medication errors. Number four, inadequate emergency stockpiles could disrupt patient care during public health emergencies. Number five, telehealth workflow and human factors shortcomings can cause poor outcomes. Number six on our list, failure to adhere to syringe pump best practices can lead to dangerous medication delivery errors. Number seven, AI-based reconstruction can distort images, threatening diagnostic outcomes. Then number eight, and you're probably most interested in this one, poor dewodnoscope reprocessing ergonomics and workflows put healthcare workers and patients at risk. Number nine, and something you're probably interested in as well, disposable gowns with insufficient barrier protection puts wearers at risk. And number 10, rounding out the list, Wi-Fi dropouts and dead zones can lead to patient care delays, injuries, and deaths. All right, so that's our top 10 list. Now, I think we can all agree that, you know, all of these items on here do not really directly apply to sterile processing, but uh, I I think four of them really do. So let's dive a little deeper into the ones that do. And starting off is number two, supply chain shortages pose risk to patient care. 
So here we have uh, the COVID-19 pandemic created really that perfect storm for medical device supply chains, right? A crisis of uh, on an international scale, multiple product lines suddenly being in high demand, supported by insufficient supply chain designs around lean inventory models. So the vulnerability of the supply chains, you know, a problem that exists well before the pandemic, uh, stem from several factors. And those include downward cost pressures have driven healthcare device manufacturers and distributors to source products from offshore manufacturers and really prompted healthcare organizations to maintain lean inventories that depended on that just-in-time delivery. There's also ongoing vendor standardization among healthcare providers as a result in contracts with fewer manufacturers and distributors. And then the complexity of supply chain and those vulnerabilities associated with raw materials coming from various sources, creating a blind spot for supply chain professionals, you know, who were taken by surprise when manufacturers were unable or unwilling sometimes to provide supplies. The unavailability of products, you know, could result in the inability to treat patients and protect staff. And with that, it could cause injuries, illnesses, and even deaths for both patients and clinicians. All right, so moving on to number four, and again, kind of deals with number two. Uh, and, you know, again, this kind of deals with us in a way because we use personal uh, protective equipment. It's vital to what we do, especially in the decontamination area. So number four was inadequate emergency stockpiles could disrupt patient care during a public health emergency. And it seems like we've been in that public health emergency for a couple of years now. Well, number four reads, emergency stockpiles that are insufficient to meet the demands of the community can disrupt care in the event of the widespread emergency. Uh, there's national disasters or other crises which potentially harm patients and can harm healthcare providers. An emergency stockpile helps organizations continue to operate when normal events or inventories or supplies become depleted when supply chains are disrupted. But if stockpiling is insufficient to meet the needs of the community during a crisis, healthcare organizations may be unable to care for the sick, the injured, or even protect their staff. During the COVID-19 pandemic, medical supplies, equipment, and local, state, national emergency stockpiles have not always been available and ready for use. There have been numerous reports of inappropriate products for the expected use, necessary products or accessories that have not been included in the stockpile, expired products, insufficient product quantities or supplies that have not been replenished, discharged or expired batteries and devices, and products physically damaged or not functioning. You know, shortcomings such as these uh, can compromise the ability of the healthcare organization to provide care during a crisis, which we've all uh, seen, especially with N95 respirators. Uh, some places have seen issues with wrappers and gowns and things like that. The article goes on to say, if the stockpile is inefficient to meet the needs of the community during a crisis, healthcare organizations may be unable to care for the sick, injured, and protect their staff. And number eight, poor dewodenoscopes, one we could probably relate to the most, poor dewodenoscope reprocessing ergonomics 
and workflow puts healthcare workers and patients at risk. Now it goes on to read the failure to adequately reprocess contaminated duodenoscopes between use is a well-known hazard, one that has led to the spread of deadly pathogens. Perhaps less well-known are the risk of injury to healthcare workers who perform this function and the ways in which ergonomic and workflow factors can compromise reprocessing effectiveness, putting patients at risk. A 2021 ECRI survey of healthcare workers who routinely performed duodenoscope reprocessing, that is, cleaning and disinfection or sterilization, identified several significant patient and worker safety hazards. Obstacles to effectively reprocess potentially increase patient infection risk. Surveyor respondents cited time pressures and poor work environment ergonomics, such as work surfaces at uncomfortable heights as key concerns. The continued use of duodenoscopes with fixed distal end caps instead of scopes with single-use components. Duodenoscopes with fixed distal end caps are more difficult to reprocess effectively, putting patients at increased risk of infection. A higher risk of healthcare workers' musculoskeletal injuries due to poor workspace ergonomics correcting these problems requires facilities to take a close look at the workflow, the workspace and surfaces, and then expected turnaround times for duodenoscope reprocessing as well as reevaluating the reuse of the duodenoscope itself. Now it goes on to say that ergonomics and workflow factors can compromise reprocessing effectiveness, putting the patients at risk. Uh, good information here. And then our last we're going to look at is number nine, the disposable gowns with insufficient barrier protection puts wearers at risk. Now here it reads that product selection errors and gown manufacturing flaws can lead to the use of medical protective gowns that do not adequately protect the wearer from body fluids and other potential substances. Gown wearers can be put at risk of cross-contamination if the wrong type of gown is purchased and worn for the intended application, or if the gown does not provide the level of protection that it is claimed. Selecting the appropriate gown, whether it's you know isolation, surgical, or a cover, for any given application, however, is not as simple as looking at its label. The nomenclature used by suppliers to designate the gown type or protection level is not consistent. Terms may be used interchangeably or in a manner that does not align with standards that define barrier protection levels. Additionally, ECRI's testing of disposable gowns has raised concerns about manufacturing quality, particularly in gowns from non-traditional suppliers this meaning new or non-U.S. manufacturers. Roughly half of the tested gowns failed to meet required protection levels. Disposable gowns can't be judged solely based on their appearance, label, or packaging, which makes it extremely difficult for both the purchasers and the wearers to know the level of protection that the gown will provide. Healthcare facilities need to vet prospective suppliers and their product and they need to educate wearers about which of the gowns in inventory are appropriate for various uses. Interesting information, right? I think we can all apply uh, each of these to our facilities. So some really good things to think about as we start the new year 
And as we examine those vulnerable areas and situations that affect the sterile processing department. So uh, go check this out on the ecri.org website. And that is what's on my mind. Today we're talking to Sharon Rojo. Sharon is a CRCST, CIS, CER, CF, ER, CHL, and newly FCS, Fellow of Central Services. He has served on the PDRC, which is the Professional Development Resource Committee for ISHM, and as well as the Education Director for CCSA, California Central Service Association. Sharon has 30 years in sterile processing as a sterile processing technician, SPD educator, an instrument coordinator, and a surgical technologist in the surgical realm. Sharon is currently one of the educational specialists for Healthmark Industries and has been with the company for over three and a half years. Well, Sharon, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, John. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on achieving the CS Fellowship. I know that you put in a lot of time and a lot of effort in this study, and you know the fellowship is well-deserved, so congratulations. Well, thank you so much, John. Thank you. So I just have a few questions for you, and first is, what made you decide that you wanted to pursue the Sterile Processing Fellowship? Um, well, it's, it's going to be different from maybe if you ask somebody else. Um, but for me, I actually knew that if I received my fellowship, that the study would be published in the International Process Magazine. And I could use that to reach a larger target audience with sterile processing professionals. I had basically all the data that I extracted from 2019, but I had not written the study yet. And I didn't know at that time if it was really going to just be an article or a study. But what really pushed everything to do the fellowship was my eight-year-old daughter at the time, she's 10 now, ended up having a laparoscopic um, appy or lap appy okay. appendectomy in September of 2020. So that was like right in the pandemic, right? Where yeah. one, one parent can only go with your child. And um, she ended up having complications from the surgery and she ended, ended back at the hospital in critical care for four days. And that was six days after the original procedure. When I was asked by the surgeon in the initial um, surgery and pre-op if I had any concerns, um, I said, yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I asked the question if they had performed insulation testing and explained that to her because I didn't know she would know that. Mm -hmm. And after I explained it to her, she understood what it was. She flat out said, no, they don't at all. Wow. So I decided to go ahead and do the surgery, being that my daughter was on morphine and in very much pain. And, you know, obviously if I stopped this, we'd have to go to another hospital where I would get, you know, basically take this chance again. Because yeah. I really didn't know the area all that well. And then after returning to the hospital after six days, um, which I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is probably internal burns. Because that's one of the signs is vomiting, um, very much in pain kind of jaundice a little bit. I mean, she she was bad, but it ended up turning out that the infection hadn't been all taken out of her body and her body was shutting down. 
So I decided, and this was in September. So I decided that this was a near miss. Yeah. This could have easily been from arcing. And so I ended up writing this study three months later. So I took two weeks off of work and I had two weeks off of school. I was a full-time student at the time. And that's when I decided to write it. Wow, that's what a story. And, and is she doing better? Has she recovered fully? Yes, yes, recovered fully and everything, yes. Well, that's good to Thank hear. Yeah, that, that is so scary. The process to apply for a fellowship can be lengthy. Can you talk to us, can you talk to our listeners kind of about the process and what it takes to be a fellowship? Well, I know for myself, I, I didn't know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't know what it really consisted of. So I just went to, um, well, at that time it was Isham, but now you can go to the myhspa.org. So I went and just looked around in the website and um, you just go under education and then you select fellowship. And then under the learn more, you'll see all these links to documents. <clears throat> so what I did is I just went in order. So I would click the link and the first link was how to attain a fellowship. So for an example in there, it would say something like an active member in good standing. So really what I did is I printed it out and then I used it as a checklist. Mm -hmm. And I would check it off to see if I had it, didn't have it. And that's where I started. And then after I did that, then I looked at another link below that, which was steps of submission. And then there, you know, it'd say, well, you need a vitae, you need two letters of recommendations, a, a topic and a detailed outline. So again, I used that as my checkoff list. Nice. Then after that, there was another link below that called current fellows. In there, you can see all the fellows, past fellows, and there's about three different links on three fellows that you can actually see their paper. So what I did is I clicked on uh, all the links to see how they structured it, because I honestly didn't know how to set this up. Mm -hmm. And if my topic was valid, like, was this something that I could do? And, you know, just so it was nice just having examples. And then the last one was the application itself. And that one didn't happen until after I went through my checklist and then I, you know, met, met the checklist and then I filled out the application. So it was pretty straightforward, I got to say. And then I asked some of my mentors and, and that I have and told them what I wanted to do and why. And they were very supportive. And of course, they uh, told me, you know, as soon as you get going, you know, let us know and uh, we'll review it and help you out. So that's kind of how it started. In the article or in the research study, you mentioned the new amendment, the insulation testing amendment that was added to ST79 in 2020. Now, why do you think it took so long for this type of guidance to be included, included in this document? You know, laparoscopic instruments have been around for decades, right? So why do you think <laughs> yes, it took have. so long? Well, yes, they have. I remember starting in SPD in the early 90s, and it was, you know, it had been around in the 80s, but yeah. it was the latest and greatest back then. So you're absolutely right. Well, let's clarify a few things. So the new amendment was actually released January of 2020, to be exact. Right? Mm -hmm. It was on the 20th of that January. Um, but the amendment was in 2020. And the process for, in general, or for an amendment or a complete revision takes time. I mean, if you think about it, you, know, you have a lot of representation from users, vendors, you know, adding that key information um, for users of the document to understand and making sure that 
All the items are covered for a specific section, and of course, the research involved. So it took time. But honestly, the amendment, in my opinion, didn't really take that long once we got started.、Mm -hmm. um, and even the FDA came out with a warning letter in 2018 that even I wasn't aware of, to be honest, when I wrote the study. And so I started doing research. I'm like, wow, that was a letter that came out, really. And then that's when I started diving in and went, oh my gosh, there's there's a lot of medical malpractice suits. And I went to the FDA mod report, and it just kept going. But I think that. There was issues. I just think that it just got overlooked,、mm -hmm. and that's why I was so passionate about bringing this study forward. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of how, like, I mean, you know, there's a lot out there on endoscopes and cleaning and how important it is, but it seems like it seems like now we're focused on it. You know, we're hyper focused on it, and it's like, yeah, we knew this was important the whole time. Why haven't we been focusing on it more? So I, I think it's. I think one, it's、right. great that ST, you know, the Amy folks have got on board with that,、um, right? And you know, there were four amendments that came out, but as a group, we felt that the issues surrounding insulated devices or the severity needed to be addressed now as an amendment, along with those three other amendments, instead of waiting a couple more years. Because back at that time, it was still a couple more, two more years. Um, for the complete evaluation of the document, which it's up every five years, so actually it's going to be up this year、um, to be reviewed. So at the time, we just felt like, yeah, as a group, we need to do this now,、yeah. along with the three other, excuse me, as long as the three other amendments. I completely agree. Now we know, and and of course you know that an injury resulting in an insulation failure such as burns can be very serious. Any thoughts on why manufacturers' IFUs don't include insulation testing? That's a great question. <laughs>、um, as you obviously in the study, you know there was some variations,、mm -hmm. and some of it was just vague or just saying inspection.、Um, in my opinion, I believe that it could be a couple of reasons.、Um, if you look, <clears throat> if you have to look at the instrument process to be approved in general. Some instruments approved, let's say in the 80s, may have not been required to submit that type of information at the time. You you know how it goes, John. It's、yeah. a lot of the technology may come out quickly, but maybe some of the testing or maybe some of the cleaning may be lacking or maybe a little bit more vague.、Um, but that would just be one.、Um, another one: the manufacturers may not be aware of the issues surrounding the insulated devices because many lawsuits are settled outside of court and they're not public. So they may not know, to be honest. And sometimes standards and recommendations must come out first <laughs> to bring around the change for manufacturers to go back and to do validation testing and/or add steps to testing, actually in their IFU. So a couple couple reasons.、I、yeah.、Guess. You also mentioned something in the article that I found really interesting, and that's stationary insulation equipment not located near workstations. Can result in non-compliance. Now, I found this interesting because I've worked in departments where, you know, you had that stationary equipment. One, because it was so heavy, you, you just didn't move it around. Can you talk、right. about what you observed? Of course.、Um, well, this goes with anything in SPD, like you're kind of saying. And I'll give you an example. Let's say borescopes. So let's say you have six workstations, but you only have one borescope, and it's off to the side on an inspection station of some kind. The frontline teams may not walk all the way over there to the station to inspect,、um, or it could be in use by another technician. 
So really the way you look at this is if you want compliance, you need all the tools needed to do your job at a workstation. And if you look at a typical workstation, you have your integrators, you have your latching mechanisms, you'll have testing material. You have a lot of things in magnification, but we can't isolate items that are more expensive possibly because some of your installation testers and first floor soaps can be pricey and we can't let costs override quality mm -hmm. but we need to not look at them as just because they're expensive then we need to see get one or two and put them off to the side or put them on one workstation uh, you need to look at it from a compliance standpoint and you need them on all workstations if you want the individual to be able to use that consistently yeah I, that's my take on it yeah i definitely can see that you know, when folks are really busy, when they're swamped and they're, you know, appy sets, you know, laparoscopic appy sets, they're in high demand, right? So you, you generally turn those over quickly. So I can see where if you only had one and it's way across the room, how it would be something like, hey, I'll just not do this set this time and, you know, move right. on to something else. So I, I can and see And this goes that. on for insulation testers, a little bit different with insulation testers, just a little bit, because what I'm finding is let's say you have four workstations and you have one installation tester off to the side, or maybe it's on a one of the stations. You know, if you're doing a turnover and it's not in front of you, you may be tempted just to do the turnover and yeah. not do that installation testing. Or what I'm finding, and I've done this myself, is that let's say you do have that one installation tester and there's accessories for it. I'm finding I'm spending more time on a scavenger hunt to find yeah. all the accessories that go with the insulation tester or the grounding wire, um, or then I find it and then it's damaged, or some pieces are just lost in general. So I'm going to be honest. Uh, when I started reading the article in the process, I expected the rates to be, you know, on the higher side of non-compliance, but not as high as the rates that you found. Were now were you surprised by those rates? I was surprised by the rates. Yes, I was at that time. Um, but now <laughs> I'm working on a, another study for 2021. And in that study, I've extracted the data. I have not written it yet. It involves 33 facilities across the country. Oh. And I had numerous 100% fail rates Ooh. due to damage to the insulation of some kind. And it may have passed the insulation tester, but it was significant. Uh, damage. So yes, I was surprised at that data at that time, but now, now I'm really surprised. <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. Um, it, it's a hundred percent fail rate. And this was, I, if I was to guess at this point, it was at least two, if not three facilities across the country that had that. And they had no idea, wow. no idea. So. Well, that kind of brings me up to my next question about, you know, you mentioned in the study that people didn't know you know, that they needed to inspect instruments or didn't even know how to use the equipment? Do you think this is all just simply a lack of education? What advice would you give educators or managers, you know, when training folks? Well, some of it was lack of, in my opinion, annual education surrounding insulated devices. Mm. As an educator, past educator for many years, you know, we focused on annual education of things maybe they didn't do too often or maybe something that is a hot topic for a joint commission or accrediting body. But I really think that insulated devices just kind of put on the side and the equipment to test 
um, itself and their accessories and the lack of severity of testing the, um, and an inspection that could hurt a patient or even a surgeon as well um, is a factor. But not having any standards or recommendations for these type of insulated instruments didn't help any as well, John. Yeah. It didn't. Yeah. But now we do. <laughs> but at the time of the study, I, I think that was another factor is we didn't have any guidance. To answer your second uh, part of that question, what advice would I give educators and managers? Well, I would recommend that SPD leadership make sure that they go through the amendment, amendment two, and go through an action plan or to-do list to make sure that they have the correct tools to test and inspect uh, and the right number of, of items like we talked about per workstation for compliance. Now, depending on availability, and if you didn't know this, HealthMark may be able to offer free consultation practice reviews that are targeted for installation testing and enhanced magnification. It's almost like a mini audit to take a snapshot or I, I call it like a little health assessment hmm. of your insulated devices. And we go through the amendment itself and match it up with the user's process for installation testing and enhanced magnification because in that amendment, it does go over enhanced magnification. And you can actually go to the HealthMark website under education and select request a speaker or event. And you just fill out the simple form. And uh, depending on availability, we can actually go out and do that. And that's where I've gathered some of my um, information or data from the 2020 study that I'll be working on. Great. So when you were researching the instructions for you, so when you're going through that, were there different voltage requirements from different manufacturers? And do you think that's important information for the end user to have? Of course. You know, really there was one, actually two, and I don't know if the second one was in that specific study, but McGann itself, an installation tester, for an example, just using an, an example, has specific voltage settings for the type of accessory that you're using for the specific type of insulation instrument you're testing, which is a more sensitive test. Now, other insulation testers may only have a button to press and or they may just have a high or low setting. And this can be problematic only because if the setting is too low, you may not capture some of the finer damage in an insulation itself or maybe too high to where you could damage the insulation or, or shock yourself pretty bad, which I've done. Um, <laughs> and then following the IFUs as well for some of these insulation testers where they require gloves, by the way. Uh. Um, but to me, insulation testers are sort of like cars. You can have a Tesla, but you can also have a Buick, but you can also have a Toyota. And even though all these cars are great, I've had a Toyota, <laughs> I've had a Tesla, <laughs> but I actually have a, a Buick right now. They all have levels of what they can do, right? Mm -hmm. And Tesla obviously is more expensive, but it does a lot more. And that's how I look and that's how I educate on testers when individuals are looking at purchasing testers or evaluating what they have. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I do it is they're, they're like cars, you know, they all drive, they all do stuff, but at what level? So reading this study, you know, I, I found it surprising, one, that some folks didn't know how to use the insulation inspection equipment or, you know, they didn't even, you know, know they needed it. You know, laparoscopics, again, like we talked earlier, they've been around for decades and, you know, we need to do better. Was there one thing in this research that you found uh, that was unexpected? You were surprised by the results you found? Actually, I was surprised that 
some facilities, and I believe it was two of them, had more than 50 to even 75% fail rate on insulated bipolar forceps. That was surprising because I thought I would find higher uh, fail rates for just laparoscopic. I never really thought about the forceps themselves. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the forceps, they look pretty durable. But even like it was talking about earlier, I'm seeing a huge and a higher fail rate in 2021's data for insulation forceps, like 100% fail rate wow. with those as well. And this damage is in, in, in the study, I even noted that one of the damage for those insulated bipolar forceps in the mod report in the FDA, it actually burned the patient's lip as mm -hmm. the surgeon was actually cauterizing the, the mm -hmm. tongue. And there is cases where the surgeons actually, it's burning through their, their glove is, you know, <clears throat> under their hand. So yeah, I was actually surprised that the bipolar force of, and this could be in the, this new study that I'm working on was on sterile bipolar patient ready forceps and the backup bipolar forceps that were you know ready to use ready to replace into another tray or pill pouch if you were short okay last question what okay. advice would you give to a technician or someone who is thinking about going through the fellowship process well i would find a topic that you are very passionate about and have something that you want to share with your peers and your other SPD professionals. And then I would also say, make sure that you put time aside to do your paper, you know, with all of our busy schedules, you know, I don't procrastinate <laughs> a lot time, you know, during the week or like what, like what I did, I actually took two weeks off of work in school. I don't know if you want to be that extreme, yeah. but just finding time to do that and then find a mentor or someone who has already you know, has a fellowship to help guide you and give you feedback along the way. I think that's another helpful hint. Well, Sharon, thank you again for spending time with me and our listeners on the show. It was really a pleasure uh, having you talk to us today. Well, thank you, John. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sharon, for speaking with us today. It was a pleasure. For more information on the fellowship in sterile processing, visit myhspa.org website. Hey, you know what? Maybe you can be the next HSPA fellow. HSPA Podcasters episode 56 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes fill out the required information and select the code BIPOLAR. Again, the code for this episode is BIPOLAR, as in BIPOLAR FORCEPS, not the special characteristics of your personality. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time.